What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. I'm Greg Olson, and this is TE1, the podcast where we explore the evolution of the tight end position through conversations with some of the best players of all time. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to TE1. I'm your host, Greg Olson, and today I'm going to be talking to Tony Gonzalez. Tony, still as of today, is the most productive tight end of all time. I mean, 1,325 catches, 15,127 yards. I mean, when we, we, we talked last episode about Shannon breaking Ozzie Newsom's record, and when Shannon retired, he was shy over 10,000. Tony is... 15,000 yards. It's just an incredible number. He only trails Jerry Rice all time, regardless of position, 111 touchdowns. I mean, Tony is the gold standard in longevity, in consistency. You know, he was just a guy that I just always had a ton of respect for and and always kind of tried to imitate. And his last ever game was against the Panthers. And I remember walking out at halftime, coming back for the second half and seeing them present him his helmet and and the the crowd roared and the ovation that he got from, from everybody there. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what would it be like to have a career where when you called it, everyone knew they were going to be worse off for it and they were going to miss you and they respected everything you had done. And to me, that's the ultimate compliment. And to have Tony kind of take us through that journey as a young basketball player, kind of making that transition to to being a full-time football player and going to Cal and his draft day drama of where he was going to end up. Of course, he ended up in Kansas City early in his career. Some of his struggles with drops and the crowd booing him and how that really motivated him and, and challenged him to change his ways. Everyone sees him put on the gold jacket, but you know they don't realize that along the way, there's trials and there's challenges. And here's my conversation with Tony Gonzalez. How's everything going, man? You doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing well, man. Just uh, sitting around. I know. Crazy times. The only silver lining that I take out through all this, uh, it's, it's what I always talk about. It's what my Hall of Fame speech was about. I, I truly believe the hardest moments in life, individually and collectively as a society, uh, those are the moments, the biggest opportunity for growth. Right? My second year in the league, and I'm, I'm sure we'll probably talk about that, but leading the NFL and drop passes, the the worst moment of my career, getting booed, getting benched. It's the biggest growth I've ever had in my life. And I feel like what's going on, not to compare that with what's going on in society these days, but the comparison is that it sucks. We're going through a, a, a shitty time, but what can come out of that is is greatness. And that's what I anticipate uh, is happening around. It's like medicine. You have to fall, swallow the medicine down, but it's going to make you better in the long run. And Right now, uh, that that's my hope right now, is that we learn something from this. And I, I have no doubt we're going to learn something yep. from this. You can't help it. Too much strange stuff has happened between the pandemic and uh, and the racial tension that's all going on right now. It's going to get better. It's like it's like the Me Too movement a couple years ago uh, where all that was coming out. And then you see the change that, 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 that comes from that. Now, it ain't perfect, but... It's definitely way better than it used to be. And I think that's what's going to happen here. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head. And uh, 
I think those are the conversations that hopefully are being had in every family dinner table, every neighborhood, every protest gathering. I think I hopefully those are the conversations and I hope they're conversations that people are having with people that don't look like them, people that come from different perspectives, different backgrounds, because that's really the only way we're ever going to be able to move forward is if two people from different backgrounds, again, the the analogy being the NFL locker room, how can people from different backgrounds, different walks of life, different races, religions, ethnicities, how can we all not only accept our differences and embrace our differences, but then be able to work work between each other to move towards a common goal, obviously in football pales in comparison to the common good that hopefully we all achieve as a society in this country. Well, I'm with you. I have no doubt yep. that something good is going to come out of this. Yeah. But that's my personality, and yep. it always will be. And I think if you just look at history, that's how it goes. Yep. You got to go through the civil rights movements. You got to go through the wars. You got to go through the. You see it throughout the the world. Like you got to have earthquakes to relieve some pressure. Yep. It's just how you got to have storms. You that the, the tomorrow the sun's going to come out, and it always does. And you're going to have new growth. So. Uh, I yeah. feel like this is uh, the, the the time for this. It, it, to me, it's no doubt that that's what's going on right now, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, in a really bad attempt at a segue, because <laughs> we couldn't just go right into the football. The football obviously pales in comparison. The idea behind the, this, you know, series really pales in comparison to what's going on. But we are going to attempt to to move forward. And I first and foremost, the, the you know the fact that you have joined us for one of these uh, episodes is just a huge honor for for this podcast, for the listeners, for me personally. You are, you are a guy that, as a young high school player, I know you don't want to hear this, as a young high school player, you know, in the late 90s, you, you were the man. And for a young kid struggling with the transition from thinking he was going to be the star running back to all of a sudden being a 6'5", skinny white kid, and your dad saying, you're not going to be a running back, buddy. You're going to go play tight end to not knowing what a tight end is and being able to turn on the TV and and see you what you were doing in Kansas City. And of course, we'll touch on all this for you to agree to be a part of the show. First and foremost, thank you so much. This uh, it means a lot to me. It means a lot to the success of this podcast. So first and foremost, thank you. Uh, no worries, man. You know, I'm 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 happy to be here. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's let's go back and start where it all where it all began. I I. Uh, I'm really interested to just get to know a little bit about your background. I know growing up in California, raised by by your mother, um, you know, obviously a really successful basketball player, football player, dual sport, uh, just an all around great athlete. Take us back to where it all began. Believe it or not, I always tell people this. I, I don't come from a sports background. I'm the first, me and my brother, my older brother, Chris, we're the first people in our family uh, that that played sports. My, my dad never played sports, didn't, didn't watch football on television, no basketball. I mean, hardly ever, maybe during a Super Bowl or something. My mom, definitely nothing. Uh, and so this sports was something that that didn't, so there was no pressure on me as a kid to do anything. I mean, I just, I did what was ever fun. So I, I did a lot of the bass, um, a lot of skateboarding. Uh, I tried surfing. You a big ass skateboarder. Uh, <laughs> big, big, huh? Big ass skateboarder. Big ass skateboarder. In fact, a lot of people, I do this with my kids right now. I put them on skateboards, you know, where I'm like, hey, you got to take a couple laps on the skateboard because I'm telling you balance is amazing. And I think that why I'm able to have an advantage over people sometimes, man, yeah, I grew up skateboarding. Uh, I mean, that was my mode of transportation for three years. I got pumping that skateboard everywhere I went, that balance all day. I didn't have a bike. I had a skateboard. So anyways. That's awesome. um, That's great. That's great. (laughs) So I think that really has helped me become the athlete who I am. Uh, 
so so yeah, I, I tried out Pop Warner football. Uh, my brother played it. I was horrible at it. I quit. Uh, the first year I quit. Then the second year, my mom said, if, if you play again, I'm not letting you quit this time. I went out there, played uh, uh, the second year Pop Warner, got no run. Um, like I said, there was no father there telling me how to play the game. The coaches weren't that good, uh, Pop Warner football. Uh, and so I basically just rode the bench and was scared and all that good stuff. And I always talk about the bully. So I'll talk about it real quick. I had a bully uh, that scared the hell out of me. It all culminated. I ran from this guy my whole eighth grade year. Finally, my eighth grade year, it's um, at graduation. I hid from him. My whole family saw me. I saw the look on their faces. I got embarrassed. I said, I'll never see that look on their faces again. And that changed everything for me. Um, I played football the next year at my freshman on the freshman football team with all the guys from Pop Warner. And they're looking at me like, oh, you trying out again, huh? And uh, but things were different this time because mentally uh, I was ready to play. And and believe it or not, I did try to be a running back as well. I wanted to be a running back that freshman year. But just like you, they're like, no, 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 son, you're going to go play tight end. And I played tight end actually my freshman year of uh, people always talk about a lot of the receiving tight ends. Oh, yeah, they played receiver. They're just big receivers. So we moved them over to tight end. That's something I've been doing since the beginning. So that's why I never had a problem blocking. That was always part of the position. In fact, back in the, the you know the early 90s, uh, it was 1991, I think my freshman year, that they didn't throw the ball to the tight end. I mean, they, threw it to, they started throwing me the ball, right. but I was always from the tight end position. And that's what I did throughout high school. And then in high school, they started actually moving me out a little bit, moving me all over the field. And then when I went to Berkeley, uh, I played the traditional tight end position the first two years until until basically Steve Mariucci came and and said, hey, you know, we can we can move you around, too. Uh, so that's that's my early background. And then obviously basketball has made me the football player who I am. I've always loved basketball. Honestly, as a kid, basketball was way more important to me than football uh, just because you go do it on your own. I mean, you never get a pickup game of, of, of football, uh, but I, I always love basketball. But I but I owe everything my athleticism. And you have that background, too. I think a lot of these receiving type tight ends uh they all have that basketball background we're all those tweener power forwards that weren't you know if we were six ten we'd probably be, be playing in the nba right uh but and that's why we have such a huge advantage when we get on that football field it's like it's like taking candy from a baby it's like you, there's no way you're gonna guard me you i'm used to you know breaking people down on a little small basketball court with with nine other people on the court you're telling me I get this whole side of the field. Right. If you put everybody on the other side, there's no way you can guard me. Uh, and that's why football always came a little bit easier than, than basketball. Yeah. And, and really, you know, when you talk about the, Anton the Antonio Gates, Jimmy Graham, you know, these basketball guys that have successfully made this transition, I, in my opinion, I think a lot of those guys got those opportunities because of you. Now, granted, you played football at a high level. You know, these guys had a little less experience, but they saw a similar body type, similar movement, similar skills on the court, athleticism, and said, you know, why can't they follow a similar path? If we, if we get them coached up and we get them figured out, you know, the Tony Gonzalez's of the world, you kind of started that whole big, not big enough power forward to play in the NBA, but damn good basketball players Let's make them tight ends because six six on the football field who can run and catch, that's a whole different ball game than a six 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 five six six basketball player in the NBA who are a dime a dozen. Yeah, and and I think it's also a mentality. Um, I have a chip on my shoulder when it comes to basketball because I was always the little guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> believe, believe it or no, not, right? And so, and a guy that I'm guarding is you know 
especially at college. I mean, I'm going out there with future pros and guys are 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 six nine, six ten, seven foot, seven foot two yeah. that I gotta guard. And as soon as they see me, they think I'm the little guy. And so I was always trying to prove myself. Uh, and I had to use my athleticism to beat him. I couldn't just shoot over him. So I got to give him moves and, and you know, come become crafty, I guess. And so that's why as soon as you take that mentality and that craftiness and that, that you know, I've always had to work extra hard in order to make it with those big guys. And now you put me against a guy who's five foot 11 or shorter or a six foot one, six foot two guy. Because uh, that's what it is. We go against you know linebackers, maybe at the most six foot three or something, and and now I'm taller than you, and now I now I get to be the bully. Uh, it was it was it's. I think that's what you see from those guys. You see Jimmy Graham. Yep. He's he's nasty. Yep. You know he's got a little chip on his shoulder. You got to play with that chip, and I think basketball, at least for me, that really helped give me that extra. You know, I'm not going to let you beat me, especially you. You're, you're too little for me. <laughs> so here you are. You're this accomplished high school dual sport athlete. You're, cons- you know, obviously you're good enough to play college basketball, college football. Talk us through your recruiting process. I know you go play for Mariucci there at Cal Berkeley. Um, you know, who else did you visit? What were your priorities? How important was it for you to go to a school that allowed you to play both? I know back then maybe a lot of schools aren't willing to let a guy, especially with football players, spend any time doing anything other than football. Give us a little insight into what that process looked like for you. Well, uh, it was very important for me. I wanted to play football and basketball in college. Uh, I remember the guys that I looked up to, Deion Deion Sanders uh, was somebody who did it and um, got Charlie Ward. He yeah. was, he was the, the man. Of course. I don't know if people remember him, yeah. the quarterback. He actually went on to play in the NBA for 12 years. He won the Heisman and was a starting point guard of the Knicks, right? Talk about... I think he is the, one of the most under underrated athletes yep. uh, of our time, what he was able to do. Uh, really never really talked about, but he he is up there with Dion and, and the rest, Bo Jackson, those type of guys, two dual, dual sport guys. Um, for me, um, I, I was getting all these letters and I really wanted to kind of stay close to home, but I didn't want to be, I didn't want to go to UCLA or USC because it was too close. I needed to grow up. I felt like I was immature. And my parents were like, yeah, you need to go get away from everybody and go focus. Uh, I, I had a trip set up to Florida State with Bobby Bowden and the basketball team. Both of them were, were, were recruiting me. And Syracuse, those are the, the schools that yeah. I looked at that were really, really far away. Uh, but Florida State, uh, the, we played a high school game and we were supposed to play on Thursday night. And I was supposed to fly out Friday morning. The school that we were going to play didn't show up <laughs> to the game because they thought it was Friday night. So uh, my coach was like, hey, tell it was the first game of the year, too, my senior year. And they're like, hey, you can't go on that trip. They're all, you can, you can. And they were cool about it. They're like, if you want to, you can. But, I, you know, we, we, obviously we need you. Right. <laughs> and so I ended up missing that trip and I rescheduled it, but I never went out there. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because every school that I went to, like I went to visit uh, Arizona State and I was like, I'm coming to Arizona State. And then I went to um, ASU. I went to Arizona. You and and then Lute Olson, the basketball coach, was was uh, Dick Tomey, I think, was the head football coach. And as soon as I left there, I was like, I'm coming to Arizona. <laughs> and then I said, OK, I'll take one more trip just for fun of it. And I went up to Berkeley. And as soon as I left Berkeley, of course, me. So I'm easily sold is what I'm saying. I'm naive. People, you are a you dream. Tell me a good enough story. You are a I'll dream recruit. You. I'm a dreamer. I was like, yes, I'm coming here. And so it could have been Florida State is what I'm saying. I might have flown out there and been like, okay, this is yeah. where I need to be. But the last school I visited was Berkeley. They had Jason Kidd. Uh, he was my host, one of my, uh, the basketball hosts. That's awesome. Uh, 
It was unbelievable, like what they were doing at that time on the football. They were a top 10 program in football, top 10 in basketball. And that's why I went to Berkeley. And then besides that, too, I had my stepdad who's no longer with us, Michael. He was always very important. Like, look, Berkeley, it's a great education. And you are going to one of the most prestigious universities in the world. And if football and basketball does not work out, which more than likely it won't, uh, you are going to have an opportunity to do something great with that degree. So that's why I went there. Although I never graduated, spoiler alert, because I only stayed there about two years. <laughs> but but, uh, but it would have been great. It would have been awesome <laughs> if you didn't play in the NFL for 20 years. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's awesome. So coming out, uh, when I came out of school, obviously I was not a basketball player at your level. I played on like a local, on our high school. We were good locally, but we weren't great. I was like the underneath 6'4 guy that just wanted to like fight with everybody and box out. I was like that annoying guy at the YMCA. But, um, you know, coming out, I had a few schools that actually recruited me to play defense. Um, Nebraska wanted me to play defense. University of Tennessee um, wanted me to consider playing defensive line. Um, and even though when I went there, Jason Witten ended up being my host. You were a, a big time All-American linebacker in high school. Were, were, were you always going to go play tight end in college or were there teams that said, hey, we want you and we'll figure out where we're going to put you, whether it's on offense or defense? Yeah, that was uh, what Florida State okay. was telling me, that if you come here, you can play tight end. But, you know, we, we got a spot for you on defense. And there was a guy named Peter Bolaware. Yeah, of course. Who, yeah, who was a stud. And uh, I, I was thinking it would have been me on one side and him on the other side. Uh, playing playing that defensive end or whatever, Sam linebacker, whatever he played, hybrid position. Uh, but yeah, I, I knew for sure, though, that tight end was was my thing. It, it always came really naturally just because it was kind of like, you know, like a, a, I guess the comparison, maybe someone like Shaq yep. uh, playing. I was just so much bigger. And, you know, we have an advantage to be 6'5". That's why it's the greatest matchup on a football field in the NFL it took him so long. I remember when I first came in, I saw Shannon Sharp, and and he's a little bit smaller than us, but he was still bigger than those DBs, and he had an advantage. And that's where I was able um, to get on that football field. When I played uh, tight end, man, it's like just put him outside. And honestly, it doesn't matter. I don't have to be faster or anything than you. I, I just jump up, and I'm taller than you, so I have an advantage, and that's – where on top of everything else, I think that's that's where the the tight end for me it was like that just came so natural and so easy for me. Uh, it, it it I felt unguardable, and I'm sure you felt the same way. Like it's just like you can't guard me. It's just I don't even care. if you can guard me, you still can't guard me. You can do everything perfect, and you see a lot of my highlights. The guy was in perfect position, had me guarded, but I'm just going to jump up over you because I'm I have longer arms and I'm taller than you, and I'm going to you know make you look like a little kid, which. Which is what I remember Shaq watching you from the sidelines a few times. Uh, one one very vivid memory of you beating us on a game winning. I think you might have run like a stick nod down in Atlanta for a, the game winning. I want to say it was a game winning touchdown at the end of the game in probably like 2011 or 12. I don't know if you remember. I remember vividly watching you uh, jump over a handful of of our guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I remember that, that vividly. Was- <laughs> But um, <laughs> well, that's what it was. I, right down. The I middle. remember. Trust me. I so, I remember seeing it. I remember seeing it. There is a great highlight um, from me my rookie year when I bat. I didn't even wear gloves back then, and I'm running down the middle. I'm playing against Coach Cowher's defense, and they got a guy named Levon Kirkland, yeah, who was a huge stud linebacker, 
And I went down the middle, and then Elvis Gerbeck, our quarterback at the time, just threw it up in the air, and I went up over him and grabbed him. And that's the first time in my uh, career. That, that's when I knew, like, hey, you know what? I can play at this level because that he was in perfect position, but you just throw the ball up there, and I'm just going to go grab it. And that's kind of that kind of is where the thing started to change. Like, I think teams started saying, oh, my God, look at this. We can. We, it's such an advantage there to go get a guy like a basketball player. Yeah, well, that's the perfect segue because, obviously – Everyone knows your, you know, Hall of Fame career. You really had two Hall of Fame careers, one Kansas City, and then, of course, you finished your career in Atlanta. But let's go back to 1997. You leave Cal Berkeley. You're projected to be a top 15, top, you know, first-round pick. And I think your draft story, from what I've read up on and what I've heard, is is fairly interesting. So your college coach, Steve Mariucci, is now named the head coach of the 49ers. California team obviously knows you really well. The Dallas Cowboys really want you bad. And, of course, the Chiefs wanted you as bad as anybody. They end up trading up to the 13th pick to select you. Give us a little insight into what that whole draft, pre-draft combine, and then, of course, getting selected by by the Chiefs was like. Uh, Well, I think a lot of people probably have the same type of craziness where you're getting pulled from here to here. I went on all my trips, pre-draft trips, went to to Atlanta, uh, went to the Falcons, believe it or not. Uh, went to Carolina Panthers and then went to Kansas City. And then Troy, and I think it was Coach Switz, Barry Switzer at the time, they came out and worked me out at my high school, which was the coolest thing ever. Right. Because, you know, I'm, I'm barely, I don't even think I'm 21 yet. Or maybe it would have t- I turned 21 at this point. And um, they're like, and I'm back at my high school, which I still know people there. Like, <laughs> right. like the freshmen are now seniors. And I'm working out on the field that I used to play on with Troy Aikman run, going through uh, drills. And I thought for sure I was going to be a, a cowboy. Um, and I knew Kansas City really wanted me. Uh, and then the 49ers, too, with, with uh, Coach Mariucci being there, I thought I had a chance to, to go there, too. And you hear all these rumors swirling. And so the, the morning of the draft, uh, I, they still projected. I thought I would because I think Kansas City didn't pick until like the 25th pick. And, and the Cowboys were at 22 or something like that. And I, I can't really remember exactly. Actually, the, the, the Kansas City Chiefs were at 18, and the Cowboys were at 22. And that day, uh, I remember thinking, well, no matter what, I'll be a Chief if if uh, the Cowboys. But then the Cowboys were going to trade up is what I heard. Yep. And I'm still at the hotel, and my agent, Steve, um, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Steinberg, Lee Steinberg at the time, was like, hey, you got to come down here. There's stuff rumbling about you. Uh, and I'm still in bed, kind of, you know? <laughs> right. And... So I get down there, and sure enough, they say the Cowboys are about to trade up to try and get me at the 15th pick or something like that. Chiefs heard about it. They traded up to the 13th pick to get me. Uh, but obviously, it's draft day. You're happy no matter where you end up. And obviously, it worked out really, really well for me. Uh, but you always wonder what could have been. Uh, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. But me and Troy, when we see each other now, you know, we both work at Fox. And I'm always like, Troy, who knows what would have happened if uh, – I could have got it there with you. Well, yeah, I mean, Novacek just retires. They they make it no secret that they need they need a tight end to try to replace him. Troy obviously comes to work you out. So all the speculation. What does the name David Lafleur mean to you? <laughs> that's that's the tight end. He was actually rated the number one tight I end. Know, that year. I knew. Trust yeah. me, we don't forget. I could tell you every guy who was drafted. <laughs> I could. So Jerry Jones comes out after the draft, and people say, you know, Jerry, why didn't you trade up to get Gonzalez? Aikman worked out with him. That was the guy. You need a new J. You need to replace Novacek. 
And he had the nerve to say that that was the guy that they wanted all the time and Aikman wanted him. And I, there's no chance in hell that that's the case. But you better tell Aikman that the word is that he picked the other guy over you. No, I, well, I talked to Troy. I'm always like, man, what happened? what's up with that? And I've talked to Jerry about that, believe it or not. And Jerry's like, come on, Tone. You know I had to of say that. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I think uh, I think everybody, they knew what the deal was. But um, <laughs> all right, so now you're, you're going into your rookie year. Another fascinating thing that I that I that I read up on on you about. So you're getting ready. You're you talked about Lee, your agent. He calls the Chiefs and says, "All right, listen. He took him 13th overall, but this guy's better than the 13th overall pick, right? So you need to pay him the right way, or he's going to go play in the NBA. He's going to go yeah. be a professional basketball player." Lamar Hunt, the owner of the Chiefs, was a founding partner of the Bulls, so he calls Jerry Krause who we just all watched unfold his legacy on The Last Dance. He gets a little update on your NBA status and whatnot, (laughs) and uh, I think in more or less terms calls back and says, hey, Tony's going to be a football player for a long time. Uh, Let's get this deal done. And obviously your your Kansas City Chiefs career was off and running. But uh, yeah, yeah, they crushed my dreams. (laughs) Whatever, whatever, Jerry Krause. I saw the last dance. Man, we poor Jerry, poor Jerry Krause (laughs) between them. And now the the poor guy can't can't catch a break. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I've always used basketball as a leverage. I remember um, after my fifth year, my contract was coming up again. And shoot, we should talk about this, actually, because it's pretty important. Uh, I was I was an all pro for whatever, three years in a row. Uh, I'm doing things, putting up numbers that have, you know, never really, never been seen before. Yep. Uh, I can say that with, without a doubt, never been seen before. Touchdowns, yards, all that stuff consistently year after year after year. Uh, and the Chiefs, they, they don't want to pay me. They're saying, well, we'll make you the highest paid tight end. And I'm like, okay, I, I'm not really worried about that. <laughs> you better. <laughs> That's not what it's about. I want to make, you know, just as much as such and such who's a receiver that I have better stats in. I should be making as much as him. And so they said no, and then that's where the standoff uh, went off. And I actually went and tried out for the Miami Heat and played for uh, Pat Riley and and made the summer league team with Karan Butler, Rasul Butler, uh, you know, God rest rest in peace, uh, Mike James, some really good players that I I made the team and toured with them during the summer. And uh, Steve Van Gundy was my coach. Uh, uh, Eric Sposter was 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 on that staff. Wow. Uh, it was it was one of the coolest things I've ever done, and it, that's what satisfied my itch. Obviously, the contract got worked out after I did that, uh, but yeah, I've always had the hoop dreams. That's awesome. But we should talk about paying tight ends. I would love the to. right amount of money. I would love to talk about that because you know whose fault it is. It's your whose fault. Yours. Well, well, you it, were you, so good for so long. Here, this is just my theory. And I'm glad, uh-huh. and now I'm going to tell you to your face. <laughs> you were so good for so long. You were the market, but then you had to then negotiate against your previous contract because you had no one else to compare yourself to. Yeah. And I would argue it hurt you, obviously, more than anybody. And for a decade, you were so far superior than everybody else at the position you, they, yeah, they kept you number one, but you never had anybody to jump because four years later when the contract ended, it was you again. Yeah, yeah. That's sure. my that's my opinion. <laughs> I, I'm curious to know your take on that. And I'm joking, but in reality, that's really what happened. Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 the broken system. And I will say this, and, and bear with me now to every, all the fans out there. 
I, the floor is yours, buddy. The floor is yours. Yeah. It, it's comparatively speaking, okay? And so, because some people look at it and go, well, you mean you're making millions of dollars. What are you complaining about? And I go, well, it's just comparatively speaking. And so when you look at the NFL, they pay by position, which is the only professional sport that does that. And so you're right. When my contract came up, uh, no matter what, they were like, I, I don't care if you catch 150 balls and have 2,500 yards in one season and 20 touchdowns, we're still going to pay you like a tight end, which never made sense to me. And it still goes on to this day. It makes no sense. Um, and then you'd always see even quarterbacks now. You'll see quarterbacks that aren't as good as Aaron Rodgers or Peyton Manning or Tom Brady or whatever, but when their contract's up, they make more than those guys. They The quarterback position always leapfrogs each other, uh, which doesn't happen in the tight end uh, position and other positions too. And so I w- it, it's to me, like, I think, for example, and I, you know, I don't care if he, no, George Kittle, whose contract is up right now. Yep. Uh, he's, the, just look at the numbers, the impact he has on that team, blocking and catching. It's 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 un for them to say, well, we'll make you the highest paid tight end, and he's and he's saying the same thing I was saying back then. I don't I don't care about that. Yeah, of course you better make me that. But if Julio Jones is worth twenty two million, and Amari Cooper is worth Amari Cooper now, nothing against Amari Cooper, love him as a player. I think he's one of the top receivers in the league. But I don't know if I had my choice. I'd maybe I'd have to think really hard. Would I take Amari Cooper or George Kittle on my team? Forget about who you pick now. So why do you think George Kittle is going to make close to $20 million? How about 19? How about 18? How about 17? The reality is he'd be lucky. I, I, I hope it lands on around 15, uh, but probably 13, because still that's uh, two and a half more million dollars than the next closest tight end. But that's how they're going to judge him. And it's, 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 it's a broken system. It should not be done that way. It should be all just like basketball. If you average 20 points, it doesn't matter if you're a, a, a point guard, a power forward, a center. We're going to pay you like a guy who makes 20 points, uh, who, who averages 20 points a game. So that, that's always got on me. It, it, it's, it's, and people think it's not a big deal. But if you take a four or five year contract where a guy makes 15 million versus 20 million or whatever it is at the end of the contract, we're talking $25 million. That's a lot of money. Yep. That's not chunk change. And so uh, don't say just take the money and be happy for it. It's like, no, if my house, if my next door neighbor's house sells for a certain amount of money and my house is just as good, then I'm, why should I take less money than him? And so that's the, uh, I went off a little tangent no, there, Greg, trust me, but I'm tired of seeing it. I'm it's, glad it you did change. I'm glad you did because I think it's super relevant. George uh, Kittle's actually a guy that we're going to have on. Um, he's one of the the six guys that we're doing for this series. But to your point about the about the position, when I was in contract negotiations, the thing I always tried to rationalize with myself and with anyone who asked was, it's not really about I need to make as much money as possible. Is I need to make money that shows the respect for my career, my production, and my impact on the team, just like everybody else. A a contract is really just a benchmark to what your team and what the league views you as a player. So I I think what you said is 100% the case. I hope Kittle breaks the market open. It's really taken that one guy to to do it, and maybe he's he's the one. Yeah, well, when I was going through it with, uh, with Carl Peterson, the general manager at the time, who I'm friendly with, by the way, but it told me straight to my face. I know, I agree with you, but that's just how we do things, and you'll never get that. You just won't play. We just we do, and we'll franchise you every year. I mean, 
you can just keep getting franchised, but you'll still be making less money than what I'm offering you. And that's all there is to it. So every contract that I ever signed, it was like, take it, take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. It's just, it's just the way tight ends have been tra- treated. Uh, shoot, my last year, I was 17 year in the league. Uh, I had 83 catches in year 17 and almost 1,000 yards, eight touchdowns, pretty good season, <laughs> a really good season. And, uh, you know, they were like, we're, we're, we're going to have to take a pay cut. If, you di- if I did want to come back, the Falcons would have made me take a pay cut uh, uh, to the tune of $3 million. And I'm like, I, I, and it didn't get to that point because I was done. I wasn't, there was no chance. But if I did want to go back, I would have had to have taken a pay cut. And it's just like, wow. But hey, yep. that's how it goes. And there's worse things in life. There is. And, and, <laughs> and the thing I always tell guys, we get asked to do the same thing that the right and left tackle do. And we ask to defeat the same guys in the passing game that the receivers do, but they pay us half. Yeah. I mean, it's really yeah. what it comes down to. But um, well, I, I'm good for the fans out there. You guys you're watching two old grouchy tight ends bitch about this is what goes on in the locker room. So I hope everybody out there understands that this is a treat because you don't see this. There's no <laughs> doubt. There's no doubt. But it's the reality of the situation that we're in. So I totally get it. And and to your last point, I can kind of relate to that. So obviously this year, after nine years with Carolina, 13 years in the league, they didn't even give me the opportunity to take a pay cut. I'm down there at Miami and I get a call from the GM he flies down. Marty Herney says, hey, man, I, I, I flew down to Miami. I just landed. I want to come talk to you. I knew he wasn't coming to offer me a new contract. <laughs> sure enough, we sit right across the street there on, on Ocean Ave, and they didn't even give me the opportunity to take a pay cut. I, I probably wouldn't have taken it, but you know, to your point, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's just over, and, and they don't even give you another shot at it. They didn't give me a shot at it. Fortunately, a handful of other teams are going to give me uh, give me another run, but be, at least they gave you a chance to take a pay cut. I didn't even, I didn't even have that luxury. I, I went straight to zero. Yeah, yeah, well. And by the way, I want to say this too. Thomas Dimitrov, who was the GM at the Falcons, unbelievable. Done a, um, They went to the Super Bowl three years later. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here complaining about it, but they're making good moves. Uh, yeah. So I can't, I, you know, maybe he, it was the right thing to do. We're going to take a quick break, so make sure you stay tuned for more from TE1. I want to switch gears a little bit. You touched on it real quick in the beginning, and since you brought it up, I want to talk a little bit about your process. I think you've been open about it. You know, your struggles in your second year, not so much what those struggles were, because I think the the main message is, at least to me, how you were able to develop a process, a process both mentally and physically to not only say, I cannot allow this to be my performance, I cannot, but to say, all right, I'm better than this. I need to come up with a plan. I need to come up with something, whether it's a daily or weekly routine, mental preparation. You talk a lot about visualization. You talked a lot about how you developed a real kind of almost obsessive compulsive type behavior with catching balls after practice. I know I was able to develop a routine and, and to your point, it really came through my struggles. Uh, I started catching little mini balls. I went through a spurt of my career where I was, I dropped a few balls back to back and I went to Dick's uh, Sporting Goods and I bought like little mini baby balls, like K2 balls. And I would go out before and after practice and have someone throw me those balls and catch them, catch them. And the next thing you know, they throw a yard ball and it seems like it's a beach ball. You know, there was always struggles that led to 
kind of breakthroughs and str- I would love to hear, you know, not so much about those struggles, but what that led to and how it it you know kind of parlayed itself into you establishing a 17-year career, which I imagine you can't do if you don't have great discipline, believe in your process, and uh, give us a little insight on what that was like. Yeah, well, I, I started learning uh, from from greatness. I mean, I would, success leaves clues, and uh, you're not the first one to ever do this. And, and one of the best questions that you can ever ask yourself, and, and you got to be completely honest to yourself when you ask this question, is the way I'm doing things, my thought process, how's that working out for you? Are you getting everything you want? Just, just keep asking yourself, how's it working? Is it working? And so for me, it wasn't working. I'm dropping balls. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping off sides. I, I don't feel comfortable when I'm out there. It doesn't feel good. So I got to change something. And, it, and it's, it's never physical. I mean, you see it when guys come into the league. Uh, they're, they're, they're big. They're strong. They're fast. Uh, I always tell young guys when they come into the league, Welcome to the world of no longer being special. You are no longer special, uh, athletically gifted. Everybody in this room is an unbelievable, incredible athlete. What is going to separate you now is here in your brain and your heart. What are you going to do? And so I started learning from that perspective, start studying the greats, the guys that have gone before, start studying Michael Jordan, start studying Tiger Woods, Barry Sanders, uh, uh, Jerry Rice. What 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 was their routines like? And for me, I was looking at, well, shoot, I'm not doing anything of that. I mean... It wasn't a matter of me working hard. Uh, and that, like I said, when I go back to talking to the young guys, it, it's not about working hard. That's what's not going to make you better at this league. You can work your ass off. I'm telling you, but if you got to work it up here and in your heart, uh, like I'd show up, if practice is two hours, I'm going to show up on time yep. and I'm going to work really hard. You know, when the offense goes, I'm going to go as hard as I can. When practice is over, I'm going to go in like everybody else. But I figured I got to do more than everybody else if I want to be better than them. Uh, because otherwise then I'm just doing the average amount of work. And so for me, I went out there and said, I'm going to show up early and I'm going to start getting catches and I'm going to start getting catches with the full, like mentally eyes wide open, like game situations, catching the ball and turning up just for the first steps. Uh, and I'd show up to practice 10 minutes early, 12 minutes early while the defense was going, I'd get catches after practice is going. Everybody else would go in. I would get more catches, and I would, and, but not, not, not like killing myself either. I did the math on it. I think it was an extra twenty-three minutes a day. An extra twenty-three minutes a day. I went from getting benched twice uh, and all the bad stuff to being first-team All-Pro, and my career just just skyrocketed after for 20, that. And I never for twenty-three really minutes for twenty-three extra yep. extra minutes. Uh, and I became. And when you do that, though, you start to obsess on your work. And obsession is a good thing. Everybody that I bring on on my podcast, wide open from Snoop to to Strahan to Dion to to Jessica Alba to David Spade to all the they they all obsess over what they're doing. That means you're constantly yep. thinking about it. Every business, great businessman that I know, they're con- they're always looking on ways to get better. It isn't just let's go out there and then go home and and, and shut it off. And I used to do that, and because I, I could get away with it, I was bigger and stronger and and more athletic than everybody else. But once you get to this level. Uh, you're dealing with 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 the professionals, and so that's what kind of changed everything for me. I uh, I uh, and I always kept adding to that. It wasn't. It was never ever satisfied. I was I was happy with where I was at, but at the end of every season, it was always like, okay, how am I going to get better? Yeah. Like what what I can I do to get better and to and to because they're going to start to doubt me now. Everybody's I would I play these games in my head, where like kind of like what Jordan would do. <laughs> 
uh, like I would, I would write notes to myself in my, in my notebook saying they're underestimating you. They think that you've lost it, especially as I got older. They, they under, you know, nobody, th- they think you saw, I would write these like nasty letters to I myself, get it. psyching myself up. Trust me, man. Uh, and I that's get how it. it is. And I kept constantly educating myself uh, with my body. Then I got into my body. Okay. What about nutrition? How's that affecting me? What about sleep? How's that affecting me? Visualization, actually sitting down and seeing, playing the game before it, before it happens. Uh, and I started just learning. It, it, that's been the best thing about football to me is what that gave me, not just what came from on the field, the accolades and, and all the, the, the fame and the money, which is great, but the mentality that, that, that it gave me uh, and that I still continue to this day, that's what I'm most grateful for uh, that I got out of the NFL because it set the tone for the rest of my life. Yeah, that, that hits home because, and my wife sometimes thinks I'm crazy and she loves me, but I just feel like that obsession and and always having to find something, always feeling like I've always lived every off season. I go into every off season and going into every season where it's like I had this idea and I would kind of, to your point, convince myself that like you might not be good anymore. And like I would live under this like constant anxiety of not being good enough, not being the player I was before, being replaced all of a sudden you're not as fast. All of a sudden you can't get open. And I would like be at my first training camp practice and it felt like I was a rookie. It felt like I yeah. needed to like re-show everybody on this field and show the coaches and show them that I can still do this and you're not going to replace me. And it was like this weird, but it's dangerous in the real world, right? Like you, you got to find a way, at least I've at least had to try to find a way to be able to turn that on and turn that off because it's very productive for your career. And it was very productive for me personally to continue that drive to, to especially as I got older, but then you had to kind of turn it off at home because you just drove everybody crazy. Like nothing was ever good <laughs> enough. Nothing your kids did, nothing your wife did. And that was a struggle that I had where I really needed to find a way to like separate that inner dialogue when it was time you know to play ball and it was time to do my craft and my career it was helpful but at home it was hurtful and that was something that I really battled with and I still have that inner dialogue and that inner monologue as we sit here today going out to reprove myself all again out in Seattle go out there and show them that you know the guy you played against a couple years ago is still capable this the last couple years of have playing with a broken foot that was not the guy you're getting now. And like that really motivates me. It keeps me excited. And I feel like it keeps me young and to play at a level like you and play as long as you have. It's funny, the greats, the all time greats, they all kind of share that same quality. And that, and you were kind of guys that I tried to emulate coming up behind. And when you talk about the guys you looked for guidance, you were a guy when I was a young guy that I tried to, to really study and match his habits and pick his brain and watch his game. So I, I really can relate to that, and and hopefully a lot of the folks listening to this can can apply that to their own life. Yeah, well, I think uh, people talk about obsession, and some people think that's a negative word. And if they don't like that word, then maybe I can move to this word, like extreme passion yeah. or extreme love for what you do. Uh, meaning, uh, there was that great documentary. I don't know if you uh, Euro Dreams of Sushi. I don't know if you ever saw yeah. that. But it's about this. The, yeah. yeah. Have you seen it? He's like yeah. the best sushi chef in Japan. Best sushi chef yeah. in Japan, supposedly, whatever. I'm sure there's other great of course. ones. Uh, but he's been around for years and they did this documentary on him. And I remember watching him. This is dirt. I was still playing when this came out. And he was saying that he goes to bed at night dreaming about different ways to keep making better sushi. And I remember going, I do that same thing. 
I would go home and dream about ways to, to run routes. Like I loved catching footballs. I, I, I still love catching. When I, when I play catch with my son, I get, it, I get joy out of, out of when the ball hits my hands and I tuck it away and I'm the, 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 it's kind of like playing chess where all the chess players out there, like you enjoy making these moves, setting this person up. And that's what route running was yeah. to me. Like I enjoy the, the mental side of it. Like I can set you up and make you think I'm going this direction to this direction. Uh, and it's so much fun to have. And speaking of last dance, I loved in Michael Jordan uh, at the last episode, he said, could I have came back? And he's like, yeah, I could have came back. I could have went for seven. Uh, and he said, because I really felt at that time, you know, the, the, my, me mentally had caught up to my physicality. And that's what a lot of these young guys have. That's what I had. That's what you have. We're all, you run four, three and you bench 500 pounds and you squat 600 pounds, but mentally you have not caught up to your physicality. And that's such a special place to be. That's where Tom Brady's at. That's where you see those great ones. That's where the the game slows down for you. It becomes in slow motion. Uh, and I was always, and I love that. When you're in that place, which takes a little while to get to, uh, it takes time. Nobody comes in and does it right away. Uh, and if they do it right away, they got lucky and their flashes in the pan. And I, I've seen guys get hot and yep. then they fizzle out. Yep. Uh, but the ones who consistently can, you know, can sustain that, it is those guys like uh, it's the greats. It's it's Tiger. It's it's Peyton. It's you see him in the pocket. There's they're not worried at all. Mentally, they are in complete command of their bodies and where they want to go. Uh, and they're playing fearlessly. And that's where I always wanted to always get to. And that's where in the game, that's when you're having the most fun. That's when you're dominating and you're not thinking about the past. You're not thinking about the future. You're not thinking about money. You're not thinking about anything. You are absolutely in the moment playing the game that you love and dominating. There is no better feeling than that. I think, I think you, uh, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. I think it's so important for people to just to get that insight into someone that's had your success, not only on the field but now in your post career. I, I just think it's so valuable, and, and there's so many things that people can take and and kind of equate it to their own life. Something that I look back on, and, and you touched on it earlier, about sometimes the hardest situations lead to so much growth and so much progress. I look back 2010. Um, same year that you end up getting traded to to Atlanta, I get called in on the eve of the 2010 draft. I get called in by Jerry Angelo, and he tells me to my face, "We have a trade for you. Um, we had just we had just brought in Mike Martz. Now, granted, the year before we go to you know we're getting we just brought in Mike Martz. He doesn't want to use a tight end, whatever. And they bring me in. They tell me they're going to ship me out of town. So now I'm sitting in front of the draft like, oh, my God, they tell me they're going to trade me to New England unless this tight end falls out of the first round. Well, sure enough, it's Gronkowski. He falls out of the first round. They call back. Jerry Angelo calls me back and says, we just heard we just heard from the Patriots. Gronkowski fell. They're going to take him with their second round pick, which was the pick they were going to send back to Chicago. And we are now ending trade rumors from the day Mike Martz got got hired. There was rumors that they were going to get rid of me. And it kind of culminated at that point. But then Jerry calls me in after that draft and says, hey, we're not going to trade you. Well, fast forward, we go to the NFC Championship. Here I am thinking, all right, I'm back. All is good. I'm going into my contract year. I'm going to get an extension. Now a year later in 2011, getting ready to, to start up my fifth year, and I get the call that I'm being traded to Carolina. So I go from the team that was the runner-up to go to the Super Bowl to a team that was 2-14, and 14, just drafted Cam Newton, who no one knew what he was going to be, one-year starter in college, 
just hired Ron Rivera, first-time head coach, small market, 2-14. and 14. And here I am scrambling, thinking, you know, how did this happen? I love Chicago. I love where I'm at. I've had some success. The team is good. But little did I know that was going to be the best thing that ever happened to me, right? And and yeah. and I know you had a lot more success in Kansas City before your trade than I did. My success came after my trade. You had success before and after. Give us a little insight into what that whole process like. I know it started back in 08 to 2010, and then obviously it culminates in, in Atlanta trading for you, which ended up being the, the last few years of your career. Kansas City, it's safe to say that we went through some some rebuilding years. And uh, and I knew once, you know, I was with um, Herman Edwards and we we really never really got off the ground and didn't really go as planned. And so he gets fired uh, as coaches. That's what happens. That's the nature of the beast. Yep. And so I remember um, I was enjoying it. I love playing for Herm, by the way. And I put up some good numbers. Uh, and you, you, you just start to say, see the window closing. I mean, because no one, I don't think anybody ever plans on playing, uh, oh, I'm going to play 17 years in the NFL. I, I think that's the, <laughs> that's the, what, the audacity of something like that. Right. Um, and so for me, I saw the window closing and that's when I was like, you know, I, I think I need to, I think I need to move on. Let's, let's make this a mutual thing as hard as it can be. Cause I would love to end my career in Kansas city, but we're not going to win. And I maybe have two more years left to play at a really high level. I did not know I was going to be able to continue doing what I was able to do. And that's when, you know, I start asking for the trades and, and seeing what was going to happen. And then I almost got traded to the Green Bay Packers. Uh, the deal fell through right at the last second. Carl Peterson shot it out of the water. He says he didn't do it. I, whatever. We, we can agree to disagree. Uh, and then when they fired everybody, when Carl got fired and Herm got fired, that's when I went in there and asked for a trade again. They did not want to, Scott Pioli came over from New England. And he was like, hey, uh, I'd love to keep you here. I'd love to have you a part of it. But he brought in this whole regime. I knew what was coming with that because maybe I would have stayed too even then. But as you get older, you start to say, you know what? There's certain things I can deal with and there's certain things I can't deal with. And, you know, the style that they brought in, I was like, I'm out of here. There's no way I can, I can play for. It was Todd Haley, right? Uh, Todd Haley. And I, he had a reputation and the reputation held up. As he got there, they did not win, and a lot of people didn't like him. A lot of people didn't like all the people that came in there, and they blew all that up, and that's when they bought in, brought in Andy Reid and them. But so I, so I asked for the trade, and I was out of there. Uh, he granted it, thank God, um, uh, to, to Atlanta. Uh, it was, it's hard, though, too, because people love you, and, and, and I love them in Kansas City. So it's hard to say goodbye, and you disappoint a lot of people when you do that. Uh, but at the same time, I hope people understand, uh, and it's hard for fans to understand because you take ownership of the players, but we have careers and we have goals and we have aspirations. And, you know, at that point it was like, I'm, I'm trying to win a Super Bowl. I I do not want to get out of this league without at least having a fighting chance. There's certain teams. I don't care what anybody says. For the most part, you'd know if you have a Super Bowl team or, or whether or not. I'm talking Super Bowl team. You might have a good team. Who knows? But a Super Bowl caliber team. We didn't have that. And we weren't going to have that anytime soon. And so that's why I wanted to get out of there uh, and get to a team that could give me that chance and I could help to, to get to a Super Bowl. Well, I, I was sitting next to you that night that Kansas City got their Super Bowl this year in the postgame show. And 
If anybody saw you the way I saw you, I don't think there's any question that your love for the city of Kansas City, that organization, the the fans, I think it was pretty clear that night that not only you still have very fond memories and, and have a lot of, you know, strong thoughts for them, the way they embraced you, I saw you, you know, you talked to their, to their pep rally, um, you know, the, the ovation you got. Uh, it seems like everywhere you went, the fans loved you. Obviously, the Kansas City fans loved you for the amount of time you were there. But then I was there your last ever game in Atlanta. You played against the Carolina Panthers. Yep. I remember vividly, 2013, right? Yep. We played down there the last game of the season. And they gave you one of the coolest ovations before the game. Halftime, they gave you a helmet. And I... I believe it was half and half. They honored you, yeah. right? It's right there. It's oh, right is there. it right there? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's right there. I, I remember standing there, and I wasn't a young guy, but I wasn't obviously as old as I am now. I was probably in my seventh or eighth year, and you were a guy obviously I had a lot of respect for and, and kind of looked up to playing the position. And I remember thinking to myself, like, how cool would it be to have not only one organization, but in your case, two organizations to give you that kind of send off. You meant that so much to that organization that they're going to take time before and at halftime to kind of send you off. Like I remember I felt emotional about it watching it as from the other side of the field. I can only imagine what that must have been like for you to have that sort of send off knowing that that was that was where your career was going to end. Yeah, yeah, it was it was truly special. The knock on me is that you never won a Super Bowl. You never won a Super Bowl. And that's fine. That's all good. I, I promise you, don't get me wrong, I, I would take one. You know, some people are always like, I, I wouldn't trade a thing. Now you, No, I, w- I would definitely love to have a Super Bowl ring. But at the same time, I wouldn't trade my experience of being, of being in Atlanta, of being in Kansas City, being around those fans and having the success that I was able to have. Uh, I wouldn't trade that for a Super Bowl ring because it, let's say I played seven, eight years and got a couple Super Bowl rings. I wouldn't want that. I would not trade it. My career has been amazing and been around some great organizations. Yeah. You're, I mean, your career speaks for itself. And, you know, this year I kind of found myself in that same position um, going into the last game of the season. We had a really tough year. We fired Ron Rivera with only a couple games left. And, you know, there was some turnover within the organization and the, and the writing was on the wall. I, I did an interview where I kind of told it for what it was. And I said, you know, I'm not sure what the direction of our organization is right now. And I'm not sure if I'm going to be a part of that direction. So I went into that last game, home game in Charlotte. And uh, I remember flying, you know, flying my whole family in and making sure everybody was there. And, and I told everybody leading up to it, I said, I'm going to approach this like this is my last game. And I'll never forget running out of the tunnel. It turned out it wasn't. But at the time, it felt so real that this was it, right? Like last time getting dressed with your buddies in the locker room, I'm like taking pictures with the guys, right? Like you're trying to soak every last second of it up. Um, You know, coming out, I always meet my family on the same side of the field before the game and give them a hug. And my wife is crying and my mom is crying and everyone, (laughs) we got like 30 people on the sideline. And, you know, I just remember standing on the sidelines before the kickoff and you're emotional and you're kind of fighting back tears and you're like, this could be it. You know, it for, you know, again, for me, it turned out that I had another opportunity that I just wanted to give it a shot. But at that moment in time, I thought that was it. And, and I remembered I watching guys like you and other guys that I really looked up to and respected go through their moments at the end. And 
you can't help but have all the great moments, the great people, the the people that have impacted your career. It kind of all comes like rushing back to you at the same mm-hmm. time. It's kind of a surreal, weird moment. And I remember it took me a couple days to kind of come down from that kind of emotional high of what could have been my last game of my whole career. Yeah, yeah. And and how fortunate to be in that position where you recognize that this is the last one. Because a lot of guys get it taken away from right away with no with, – they didn't know it was coming, whether it's an injury or, hey, you're just not good enough anymore, sorry, uh, where you get a chance to actually soak it up. And so, yeah, I knew it was obviously ending for me. My whole family flew out. I flew out my high school coach, my high school basketball coach, like all everybody who had meant so much to me in my career, they were there at that game. Uh, and it goes like that. I mean, honest, and I didn't play well. I, I think I, I got my ass kicked that game. <laughs> But Nobody I, remembers. mentally, I was just, I was yeah. just gone. I, it's just, you, you, I there's it. so much going on there. But yeah, just, just to be able to be in that moment, though, that's what I'm so happy to know that I, on purpose, I'm walking away, at least for me. Obviously, you're going back for more. But I knew I was walking away on purpose, like be on my own terms, knowing I got more, but I'm going to step away. Uh, and it was emotional. I cried about it, uh, hugged a lot. Uh, but there was more tears of joy. I was happy. I was really proud of what I was able to accomplish uh, on on and off the field and, and the relationships I was able to establish. It was a it was a great day. Yeah, I, I remember it. It's it's been a moment, and it's one of the moments that I remember the most that had nothing to do with me. And to sit here and be able to kind of reflect on that with you is is really cool for me. Um, you brought them up earlier, and and I think it's kind of a cool way to wrap this wrap this conversation up. Obviously, the the spectrum of this of this series, right? We we've talked to Mike Dicka and Shannon Sharp, yourself, but now we start entering kind of some of these these current guys. You brought up George Kittle before, who's kind of taken the league by storm in his first couple of years. A guy that shares the same same old threads as you and Travis Kelsey. I know you and Travis have a good relationship, and you guys have spent a lot of time kind of sharing stories. And you've been a big you know advocate of his. Talk to me about how, what you see the tight end position. As of today, I mean, you've been around this game for a long time, and obviously, you still are heavily involved in the game. You cover it for Fox on TV every week. I mean, you could argue we're in a, a heyday. We are in the glory years of the tight end position in the NFL, and I'd love to just hear someone of your caliber kind of reflect on that and give your thoughts on who you've kind of passed the torch to as we sit here in 2020. When I first came in, watching Shannon, who played for the for the Broncos and I played for the Chiefs. So I got to watch him twice a year uh, and play against him twice a year. So I got to watch him up close and personal, which was great to see what he was doing uh, and, and steal from him and steal what he was doing great and able to apply it to my game. Uh, but seeing what, where it's come to now, you're exactly right. It, it's, it's only getting better too, because I do believe that there were guys that were capable of putting up big numbers, but nobody would ever put them in that position. To, to have success. Like you said, Mike Martz comes in. Uh, I remember when when uh, Dick Vermeil came in, who I loved, uh, they, they brought in that Martz-style offense. And so you just don't have the same opportunity. And it's just like giving these guys a chance. And now you got offensive coordinators saying, you know what, tight end position, that is where the mismatch is. That is where you can set the tone. You look at what they're doing up there in Baltimore with three tight end sets now. Yep. Like it's becoming such a huge part of our game. Everybody wants one of these guys. Everybody wants two of these guys now because of what you can do, the mismatch that it creates, where you can put two tight ends on the field at the same time. And now you've got the defense going, okay, what the hell? They're going to run the ball. But now you got two tight ends that can run four or five. 
they're becoming so much more athletic uh, and faster uh, across the board. And so I look at guys, like you said, I look at, I talked to all of them too. I talked to Ertz, I talked to Kelsey. Hell, we talked a lot while we were playing. I'd come over yep. there. I remember after the game talking to you and, and Jeremy Shockey yep. about what's, what routes you guys like and how's it going out there. We'll keep those conversations between us. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and we'd also bitch too, as oh, football players. You do. have to. That's part. It's the right. It's the right of passage. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just think that's why I go back to George Kittle. Pay him a lot of money because of what he does, and and he's blocking on top of that. I, I love watching George. I love watching Zach Ertz from a receiving standpoint. The craftiness of Kelsey. It's so methodical. Like he's like a shake and bake basketball player yeah. out there. Uh, and every, we all have our own styles. And I love that too. We all come with different personalities and different uh, styles. Look, also, too, look at the personalities of these guys. <laughs> I know. You got Shannon Sharp. You got Kelsey. You got Gronk. You got you. You're, you're doing the – like myself, it's also such a position that you have to know everything on the field. We know offensive lineman schemes we know the receiving schemes we know the x the y and the z we know the f position we know everything uh and i think that's why it's it's even more valuable as this position just keeps exploding and it's a glamour position now where uh, and i and shannon started that shannon was doing it year in and year out uh and i picked the torch up from him and then and Gatesy, you know, it's always a couple guys. Gates, me and Gatesy picked up that torch. Then Jimmy Graham started taking, and you, Gronk. Now you're seeing Kelsey, and you're seeing Kittle, and you're going to keep seeing it get passed and passed to the next great tight ends of, of our game. And I love it. It's been so much fun to watch. Yeah, and I just I just think the whole concept is so cool to hear guys talk about who they pass the torch to and so on and so forth and kind of take everybody through this 60-year journey through some of the most iconic, not only tight ends, but NFL players in history and let them, in their own words, explain what that game has been like and what the evolution of that position has, be, has been. And I think it's so cool. And I know you impacted my career a lot as a young player and still do today. You're still a guy that I go back and watch what he did. You're still a guy I go back and steal some tips. Maybe towards the end, I don't quite have the separation, but it never mattered to you. And uh, you're a guy that I've had a ton of respect for. You've been great to me um, as I've considered transitioning into other careers. So for you to be a part of this, Tony, is a, is a real treat and an honor for me to talk to you. Um, it's cool to reflect and kind of share similar background stories and similar career experiences. So You've helped make this uh, this episode special, and and I hope everyone enjoys uh, hearing from greatness. And and you know, in my opinion, the guy who set the bar and is the all time greatest to play the position. Maybe one of these guys will beat you one day, but they got a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. But I uh, hope they do. <laughs> I, hey, but for now, uh, in, at least in my mind, I, you know, you're the greatest to do it. So to have you a part of this series um, is huge. So thanks so much, bud. Ah, thank you for having me, Greg. And and I will echo this. I was always watching you too. I talked about stealing from the greats. I'd always watch your routes, watch your timing, how you set them up, and that's what it is. Like you said, let's 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 make each other better. Uh, we're on the same side of the ball. There's always that rivalry, which is good too. Yep. So that's it's awesome. been fun. Well, thanks so much, man, and uh, I'm happy to come on yours. And uh, good luck with your podcast, sure. and uh, good luck with everything else you have going on. You're a busy man. All right, thanks, bud. All right, man. To Talk to you soon. It doesn't take very long from listening to Tony talk to realize why he's arguably the most accomplished tight end to ever play. I mean, positivity and optimism and and insight 
it just oozes out of him every time you have a conversation. And I felt like that conversation we held, it felt like we talked for 10 minutes. It, it just, the guy is captivating. It's no wonder that he, in my opinion, he's the greatest tight end who's ever played. You can tell why guys love playing with him, why his career lasted so long across two organizations. And his voice is so relevant and is so important to telling this story. It was an absolute pleasure to have him a part of this series. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and tell your friends. Next episode, I'll be talking to Travis Kelsey, so be sure to listen in. TE1 is a Blue Wire podcast.